0: Good evening, if you would take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 5. Mark, the fifth chapter, and we come to one of those amazing stories in the Bible that is captivating from the moment you begin it till the very end, the story of the gathering demoniac. Uh, the title of the message is, Can the Demonized Be Delivered? Uh, in his classic works, Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis, who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity and a number of other wonderful works, has a dialogue taking place between two demons, the older, more mature, seasoned demon by the name of Screwtape and his young apprentice by the name of Wormwood. And the book itself is fascinating because they carry on conversations throughout as to what would be the most effective means for defeating Christ, defeating the kingdom of God and seducing human beings. But in the preface to that book, C.S. Lewis makes a very, I think, astute observation concerning one of the major tactics and strategies of the evil one when it comes to how he interacts with human beings. And Lewis writes, and I quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, about the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hell. That is, they salute their happy with a materialist or magician with the same delight. And what he's simply pointing out is either extreme is fine with the devil. You can be a materialist, a naturalist, someone that buys into an anti-supernatural worldview such as we have in skepticism, the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. And they simply deny altogether that demons are real and are fooled into disbelieving into their existence at all. In contrast, and this is where much of popular America is today, you've got New Ageism and postmodern mysticism, such as people become then enamored with the spiritual world. And so today, almost anyone that you talk to would say, well, I'm spiritual, and therefore I believe in the spiritual realm. I want to participate in the spiritual realm. I want to get in touch with spiritual realities. And so uh, it's not very difficult to find people today that believe in angels. Uh, that believe in demons, that believe in spirits uh, beyond this world, though they may not identify all of them in the same exact way. In fact, over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, there has been clearly a fascination with uh, the occult uh, and uh, the world of spiritism. Go back to 1969 and you have the movie Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, the blockbuster, The Exorcist. 1976, The Omen. 1977, Exorcist 2, 1997, The Devil's Advocate, 2000 re-release of The Exorcist. And then when you add to that what is called satanic ritual abuse and our continuing and growing love affair with Halloween in its very different fascinations and in its various different uh, facets, it's very clear. That we live in a nation and we live in a culture that, uh, though we claim to be very enlightened on the one hand, uh, we can be very fascinated with the spiritual realm on the other. And so the fact of the matter is, for those of us uh, who are Christians, who follow uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Master and King, what we need is not popular opinion, uh, regardless of the extremes. But we need to have a healthy dose of biblical truth that lets us understand what God's perspective is on this thing called the world of the demonic. Now, what we're going to see tonight in this text very clearly is that Jesus clearly believed that demons were real. And therefore, that should settle for all of us who call him Lord, that issue. Yes, there are angels. Yes, there are demons. There is a spiritual reality that we don't see that is real and authentic and active. And what we're going to see in our text this evening is Jesus encountering and defeating the demonic as the kingdom of God is marching on as he deals with a man from Gerizim, the man I refer to as the uh demoniac. What we also see in this text is one of the major strategies of Satan when it comes to human persons, that strategy being he wishes to destroy us. In fact, I am quite convinced that behind much of suicide in every age and including our own is demonic activity whereby the evil one seeks to destroy human persons. And what we're going to see in this particular text, and then again in the remainder of chapter 5, is that Christ not only has authority, as we saw last week, over nature. He has absolute authority over the demonic. He has absolute authority over diseases. And he even has absolute authority over death. Regardless of the situation, Jesus has the power both to deliver and to say. And so there are three major movements to this text I want us to walk through this evening and to consider. So note with me, first of all, in the first five verses, that Jesus indeed does confront the demonic. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was also always crying out and cutting himself with stones." Jesus has just calmed the sea in the end of chapter 4. He has rebuked the wind and commanded it to be silent, and it has been. And now they've moved to the other side, and as we ended chapter 4, we saw the disciples asking a very important question. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? And what we're about to see is the answer comes from a very unlikely source. It comes from a man who is demon-possessed. Now, what is it that Satan tries to do in your life and in my life to defeat us, uh, to cause us to uh, question God? What is he trying to do in terms of his confrontation with you and me on a daily basis? Even if it's not that he indwells us, what is he trying to do ...in combat against us. Well, I see three things in this text. Number one, Satan does indeed attempt to defile the image of God in man. They've crossed the other side now that the sea is calm, and they've come into the area of the Gerizines. The New King James says the Gadarenes, actually uh, Gerizines was a region or a district. And Gadara was the major city in that particular area... And then there was a little smaller town as you moved toward the coast called Garasa and at that place there was a steep slope of about 40 yards from the shore and from there even today from excavation we have discovered that about 2 miles in there were very cavernous tombs as well so what we have in this description in Mark fits perfectly with what we know today from archaeological excavation as well well the text tells us as they got out of the boat immediately there's that word again a man with an un Clean spirit. We'll note later in this text that he has the name Legion, verse 9, and we also see down in chapter 5, verse 15, and verse 16, and verse 18, he's referred to as being demon-possessed. So once more, we see that Mark uses in an interchangeable way the phrase unclean spirit and demon-possessed, talking about the same thing. This man is a demoniac. This man is possessed with a demon. And so the text says he came out of the tombs And he met Jesus. Mark provides a rather vivid and elaborate description of this encounter, whereas Matthew uh, gives us a more streamlined version. But interestingly, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 and following, he doesn't mention one man possessed with an unclean spirit. He actually mentions two. I believe that what you have here is Mark giving attention to the more prominent individual, the wilder of the two. And the fact of the matter is there may have been more than just these two men running among the tombs there in the region of the garrisons. We don't know that, but we do know that at least two were there, and Mark chooses to pick on uh, or to address the one who was the more prominent. The text says very clearly he was possessed with an unclean spirit. In other words, this man was defiled. A Jew, for example, would have nothing to do with a man like this. Not only that, a Jew would not be anywhere in this vicinity because to touch even a dead body. Uh, which, of course, would be uh, unlikely in the tombs, but touching perhaps the the, the uh, container in which the dead body was located, again, to them would be a taboo. It would render them unclean. And so as a result of that, there would have been no Jews in this area. This man is out there by himself. He's out there alone. He's out there defiled. He's living among the dead. And I don't think you can miss the significance of the fact that he himself is spiritually dead. And if one could be more spiritually dead than another, then certainly this man would fall into that category. Satan had defiled the image of God in him and had done a very good job of it. But then secondly, Satan also attempts to deface the image of God in man. Verse 3, yes, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Mark really does paint a pathetic picture, doesn't he? He gives us a, a portrait of just what Satan is capable of doing when he gets a hold of someone, even someone made and created in the image of God. This man is not only defiled, he is deranged and depraved in his behavior. He, he's not a maniac. Uh, He is, well said, a demoniac. He is mad. He has been driven away. He is possessed by a supernatural power that exhibited supernatural strength. The text says he he snaps the chains uh, like they're twigs. Uh, He smashes the shackles like a a rotten tomato. He's defiled. He's defaced. And now he has descended into a life of filth, a life of loneliness, A life of terror. People were scared of this man with his Herculean strength. Again, all we can say is it's shameful to see what Satan was able to do having conquered and captured this man. So yes, Satan attempts to defile the image of God in man. He attempts to deface the image of God in man. But ultimately, he seeks to destroy the image of God in man. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains... He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus tells us the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He tells us again in John eight forty four, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And of course, many of us are familiar with the well-known verse in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And I believe verse 5 reveals that this is exactly the plan Satan had for this man who is demon possessed. The text says, always, it never stopped. Night and day, there's no rest. Among the tombs and in the mountains, wherever he went, no escape. He was crying out and, and here's the key phrase we need to unwrap, he was cutting himself with stones. So he's howling like a wild animal. He's running here. He's running there. He's cutting himself against the jagged rocks in the land. Now, here's the question. Why was he doing this? Why was it that this man was continually cutting himself against sharp objects like sharp rocks? Well, some people believe that this was a sign of his depraved pagan worship and that actually he had now devolved all the way down to worshiping uh, pagan gods that were, of course, motivated and energized by the demonic. Others have said that it was a futile attempt to drive the demons out of himself. I don't think that makes much sense at all. No, actually, I think the best understanding is what he is doing is a failed attempt at suicide. And I think when we see what happens in a moment in the narrative, when we get to the story of the pigs rushing over the hillside and being drowned, I think you then have a confirmation that this is the best understanding of why he was cutting himself. He's running around wild. He's running around naked, unkept. His body is cut. His body is bruised. No doubt he has lacerations, scabs, infections. He's in a state of delirium. He's in a constant state of pain. And so perhaps in part, but also in light of what the demons are trying to do, he is thinking in the realm of suicide. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that the only reason he did not commit suicide was the last vestiges, the last evidence of God's image in him prevented that from happening because the, the, the pigs do not bear the image of God. I'm going to assume for argument's sakes that a man's will is stronger than a pig's and therefore what he was able to accomplish, that is the demon's legion through the pigs, he was not quite able to pull off with this man whom he had defiled and defaced and now was trying to destroy. Again, do I believe that when Satan possesses people, and I do believe that demonic possession is a reality today, do I think ultimately his goal would be to destroy them? Absolutely. He's not content just to deface you. He's not just content to defile you. But ultimately, he comes to destroy. And so, praise God, the Son of God has shown up to confront The demonic. But now move secondly. Jesus also conquers the destructive. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, number one, he ran. Number two, he fell down. I would mark that because later in this text we will see that Jairus comes to Jesus and falls down. The woman who has been bleeding for 12 years when she is exposed for having touched Jesus and been healed falls down. And so here the demoniac comes and falls down and begins to cry out with a loud voice saying, "Uh, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Have you, I adjourned you by God. Please do not torment me now it's interesting in the jewish talmud there actually was a fourfold criterion whereby you could determine whether or not a person was demon possessed i believe you have this in your notes number one walking about at night he qualifies number two spending the night on a grave he qualifies number three tearing one's clothes he qualifies Number four, destroying what one was given, he qualifies. This man meets the criterion of a demon-possessed man and more. And basically, from a Jewish perspective, he was all but undone. He was all but lost. He had no hope. And yet, praise God, Jesus shows up. And we know two things about our Lord in terms of his showing up in contrast to the evil one. Number one, our Savior does come as a liberator. Verse 6 picks up with where we were back in verse 2. There's a sense in which verses 3 through 5 almost serve as a, a parenthesis, a parenthetical section filling in some important details. Seeing Jesus from a distance. We don't know exactly how far. The madman comes and runs and kneels down. Now, if you have a new King James, it says he worshiped. I think that's probably going a bit too far. I don't think the demon came, uh, the demon possessed man came to worship, but I do think he fell down in a posture that would characterize someone who is worshiping. And I believe he fell down because he had no choice. Uh, He's now in the presence of deity. He's now in the presence of God. He's in the presence of the Lord. And so kneeling down, I don't think was so much an act of worship. As I think it was more likely an acknowledgment of the authority of the Son of the Most High God. And indeed what he says I think would bear that out. He cried out with a loud voice. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He says there, I I beg you. Could be translated, I implore. Uh, I adjure you by God. Do not Torment me. In other words, the demon reacts and responds the way he does because of what we read down in verse 8. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so this demon possessed man is now confronted with someone that he has no hope of conquering. If you think of it in terms of a battle, this is no contest. Uh, This won't even go one round. This won't last uh, more than 10 seconds because he is going to meet defeat and meet defeat immediately. Now, as we've already seen in Mark's gospel, there is something interesting about the demons, and that is this. They always confess Christ accurately and truthfully. They do have good theology, even though they are lost and will spend eternity in a place called hell. It also indicates to us that they do have a knowledge of who Jesus is that at this point is clearly superior to the knowledge of the disciples. And thirdly, the confession, I like this, the confession of chapter 5, verse 7, answers the question of the disciples in chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the demon says, well, I'll tell you who he is. He is Jesus. He is the Son of the Most High God. And so he acknowledges the deity of Christ. He acknowledges who Christ is. And then he says, "Uh, what do you want with me? In other words, the demon, I do believe, understands clearly that his time is up, that his uh, period of, de- of, of destroying and, and demonizing and harassing this man has come to an end. I like what William Lane says in terms of his calling him and acknowledging him as the son of the Most High God. William Lane says, and I quote, "...the full address is not a confession of Jesus' dignity." But a desperate attempt to gain control over him or to render him harmless in accordance with the common assumption of the period that the use of the precise name of an adversary gave one mastery over him. And so the demon actually appeals, believe it or not, to God. I adjourn you by God. Do not torment me. But as we're going to see, his request does not provide um, a satisfactory answer. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. My name is Legion, because we are many. If you've ever studied this text before, or if you've studied uh, ancient history, you know that a Roman legion was constituted of six Thousand soldiers. Whether or not we're to take that number precisely, I do not know. But what is clear is this man was not possessed by a demon. He was not possessed by a dozen demons. He was not possessed by hundreds of demons. He was possessed by thousands of demons. As one commentator said, an alien army had taken up residence in him. Thousands and thousands of soldiers of Satan had attacked and trampled his soul, and he had no hope of eradicating them in his own strength. He could only be saved by an outside liberator, and that liberator has arrived. He is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Well, the text says in verse 10, he begged him earnestly. Uh, Not to send him out of uh, the country. Uh, Luke tells us more specifically in chapter 8, verse 31, they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. So in other words, with their in essence saying is don't send us away to the demonic jailhouse. Uh, don't send us away to demon prison where we will reside until the final judgment where we will then, along with Lucifer, uh, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and all unbelievers, we will there be cast into the lake of fire. And so they begged that he would not send them immediately to that place. And so verse 11 gives us a very interesting commentary. A great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, which would also indicate that the area was filled predominantly with Gentiles, not Jews. Because they would not have associated with pigs They are unclean animals And they begged him saying In verse 12 in, in, in other words If it's the abyss Or the pigs Send us to the pigs Let us enter into them And so verse 13 This is where I think we see That Satan in contrast the son of God Is a murderer So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out, they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. Again, I think this is confirmation that ultimately what Satan was trying to do to this man was to lead him to commit suicide. They have left the man. They're now in the pigs, assuming again that the will and volition of a man is greater than that of a pig. They then do into the pigs what they had wanted to do with the man. You say, well, in some sense, that was suicidal. Whoever said that demons were smart? I think demons are stupid. I think Satan's stupid. That doesn't mean he's not smart. You can be smart and stupid. Some of us are smart and stupid. Some of us are a little smart and a lot stupid, and I'd probably be a prime candidate there. You say, why would you say that, that demons and, and Satan are stupid? They know how it's going to end up, that they know what's going to be uh, the end game. And yet, in spite of that, I think they convinced themselves they can still beat God. They can still beat the Son of God. And furthermore, I think they're dumb enough to commit suicide and have themselves cast into the abyss. And so they enter into the pigs. And what does it do? It leads to the pigs and it leads to the demons their banishment from this particular area. Now, a million-dollar question always arises when people read this text. But why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs and then the pigs, bless their hearts, They all get drowned. Well, there are a number of things I think that we can say. First of all, I think Jesus recognized that the ultimate banishment of the demons was not yet uh, the right time. That is going to be something out there in the future. That is going to be something that's eschatological. That's going to be something at the end of the age. And so, in a sense, he's not banishing the demons permanently uh, as will be their end uh, at the end of time. But secondly, I think there's two other observations that we can make, and that is this. Jesus didn't destroy the pigs, the demons did. Jesus did not destroy the pigs, the demons did. But what's even more important, and I know this will not sit well with those who have a real affinity for animal rights and that kind of a thing. Bottom line, God cares more for a human than he does an animal. God cares more about humans than he does animals. Now, he cares about all of his creation. But there's only one aspect of his creation that bears his image, and that is you and me as men and women made in his image. And so I believe the text indicates clearly uh, a priority that God has, at least, when it comes to the souls of men and women versus the existence. I would not think that they have a soul of pigs and other kinds of animals. Now, in your notes at this point, I digress for just a moment. Because I think it's good at this point to enter into seminary, Bible college for just a moment, and do a little demonology 101. And so as I looked at this text and as I looked at other texts that deal with the uh, forces of evil, I think there are at least ten important theological observations or truths that we can make and understand about uh, the demonic. Number one, or first, a demon, in fact many demons, can inhabit and take possession of a person. And therefore, demons are both real and they are dangerous. We should not trifle or play with them. Secondly, demons can make themselves known by speaking through a person, even taking control of their body. It's very clear that this demon-possessed man was able to articulate clearly in a way that Jesus and those who are with him understood. Thirdly, as we've seen previously, demons are fallen angels and they're powerful spiritual beings. They can exhibit, as this text bears witness, enormous strength through a person under their control. Fourth, demons can inflict serious personal injury to the one possessed as well as to others with the ultimate goal of that person's death. Fifth, demons can move or be transferred from one host to another. Jesus takes the demon's eye of the man and he puts the demons into the pigs. Sixth, Demons can resist leaving their host. They may even beg out of self-interest for their own well-being. Seventh, demons recognize and are subject to appropriate spiritual authority. Eighth, if demon spirits attempted to resist the incarnate Christ, we can be sure that they will also attempt to resist us. Ninth, Jesus spoke directly to the demon, even asking for his name. This may, I would underline the word may, provide a pattern for us to follow if we deal with a demon-possessed person to the same degree and the same context that we find in jesus now let me just uh, a quick aside you might say well danny have you ever done this yes many times no just a couple did you find the pattern uh, of 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 the situation analogous to this yes Uh, i did And I simply followed the pattern that I found here in the text, but taking authority not in my name or in my standing, but in the authority of the Savior, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then finally, Jesus, unlike the exorcists of his day, who used elaborate rituals and incantations, simply spoke the word and gave the command, and the demoniac was forced to obey Thus, when it comes to our confronting the demoniac in the name of Jesus and by the power of his blood work on the cross, I too believe in our day we can see the demonized delivered and the spiritually captive set free. And so Jesus confronts the demoniac. Jesus conquers the destructive. And then number three, Jesus commissions the delivered. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, number one, sitting there. Number two, he's now clothed. And number three, he's in his right mind. And can you believe it? This caused him to be afraid. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And so as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Second Corinthians five seventeen is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. And never was that truth more real than the life of this man that had been delivered from a legion of demons. Now, as I just read, you see that the rest of the story is sadly a mixed bag. There's some aspects of it that cause us to rejoice. There are other aspects of it that cause us to be somewhat heartbroken and sad at the response of those who actually asked Jesus to leave. But first of all, note with me that we can indeed, because we are delivered from our sin and set apart for Christ, we can indeed let Jesus change us. When the demon-possessed pigs plunged into the sea and drowned, uh, the men who had uh tended to them, ran off, and reported everywhere and the countryside. And, of course, I'm not surprised. The people immediately came out to see what had happened. But evidently, they were not prepared for what happened because they come there, and the pigs are dead. But there's the demoniac. There is Legion, and he's not running around. He's not naked. He's not screaming and yelling. But there he is, and the text is very precise. He's sitting there. He is dressed, and he is in his right mind. He knew who he was and who they were. He sits clothed. He sits calm. He's a new creature because of what Christ has done for him. And amazingly, the text says, now they were afraid. They're like the disciples. The storm has been stilled. The waves are calm. And now they're scared because of who's in the boat with them. Jesus has delivered this demoniac And whereas you would have expected them to be terrified of him, they're actually terrified of the Son of God. And so the men recount the story. And the text says they began to beg. And the word is in the present tense. They continually begged him to leave their region. I consider this to be both a surprising reaction as well as a disappointing one. Now, I want to be fair. Uh, They've just taken a big hit financially. 2,000 pigs, dead, gone, useless. And so I understand that they feel like uh, this is not good for business. This is not working out for us. And so what else might this man, Jesus, do? How many more pigs might he destroy? What else might he do in our area? And so instead of embracing him, they charge him, please leave and go away. Well, I've often said Jesus is always a gentleman and Jesus will not stay where he is not wanted. And so verse 18, he leaves and it leads us to the fact that Jesus gives a commission to this man as he leaves. As he was getting into the boat, they don't want him. He won't stay. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, but he would not permit him. But he said to him, go home. To your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus gets in the boat, whether out of ignorance, fear or greed, the people in the region decide that he is not welcomed. But the man, in contrast, wants him to stay, or at least he wants to be allowed to be with him. And so he begged him in verse 18 that he might be with him. And again, the tense of the verb is continuous. He kept asking. Jesus, I want to stay with you. No, you can't. No, Jesus, I want to stay with you. No, you can't. Jesus, one more time. I want to stay with you. No, you can't. Well, then, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. In other words, Jesus does not leave himself without a witness witness. In this region now, recently I had someone that had been studying this text said to me, "Well, why, why is it that Jesus, over and over in Mark's gospel, tells people not to tell? He heals the leper, don't tell. Uh, he heals another, don't tell. Uh, we'll see uh, when we get to the end of this fifth chapter that when he raises the little girl from the dead, uh, don't tell. Why does he here tell this man to go and tell?" ...all that he has done for him. Well, the key, I think, is where this man lived. Verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. The word Decapolis means the ten cities. The ten cities were on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan. The Decapolis was predominantly Gentile, not Jewish. And therefore, there would not run the risk of Messianic mania with his remaining there and going throughout that region telling them about this man Jesus who had saved him and delivered him from a legion of demons. In contrast, when Jesus is doing his miracles among a predominantly Jewish audience, yes, he slows things down. He's a bit more hesitant because he knew they could indeed jump on what he was doing and run quickly with it, and it would prematurely move things forward in a way that he did not intend for that To be, And so the Garazines might not want Jesus, but this man does. And so Jesus indeed gives him a commission, a command to go back and tell his family, which then leads us to our final point in verse 20. We should always let Jesus, having changed us, we should let him consume us. He did go away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone back home marveled. You know, I've tried to use my sanctified imagination a little bit when I look at what was said to be done in verse 19 and verse 20 and what happened. He did go home. He did go to family and friends. And he began to tell them what Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I, I In my sanctified imagination, wondered, I wonder if this man was married. I wonder if this man had children. I, we don't know. But I could imagine that that would have been the case. How long had he been among the tombs uh, like a wild man, cutting himself and screaming and being tormented? We don't know. Could have been a few days, unlikely. Could have been a few weeks. Could have been a few months. Could have been several years. We don't know. But just imagine with me for a moment, it had been maybe a number of months, if not a couple of years. And suddenly he is headed back down a dusty road. Just down the way is a house and out in the front yard is a little boy and a little girl playing. They haven't seen their daddy in several years. In fact, they're embarrassed every time his name comes up because he's the crazy man. He's the demon-possessed man. He's the man that screams and yells and cuts himself and tears things apart, and they're embarrassed. But here he comes, and he's not screaming. He's not yelling. He's in his right mind. He's fully clothed. There's a countenance now that they had never seen before, but they know it's good. And I can imagine that little boy seeing his daddy and taking off for him. I can imagine that little girl screaming, Mama, Mama, it's Daddy. And I can imagine looking out a window a woman that had perhaps prayed for many, many months, if not several years, for a husband that she probably was beginning to believe she'd never see again and here he comes running now grabbing that little boy grabbing that little girl then experiencing the embrace of his wife and she says honey what happened and he said let me tell you about a man named jesus he had mercy on me let me tell you how much the lord has done for me You and I may not have ever been demon-possessed, but we were dead in sin. We were lost. We had no hope. And suddenly, the wonderful Son of God stepped into all of your lostness and all of your sin and took you where you were but did not leave you there, and He made you brand new. You and I, every day that we have breath, should be about the business of telling as many as we can, let me tell you what a man named Jesus has done for me let me tell you how much the lord has done for me heavenly father i love this story i hate the way it begins but i love the way it ends because i see a man that is so representative of so many in this world today in varying degrees of oppression and varying degrees of defacement and defilement but bottom line apart from jesus all dead all defaced, all defiled, all with no hope. And you sent your son to rescue them, to liberate them, to deliver them from the evil of sin and of Satan. And Lord, that won't happen if they're not confronted with Jesus. And that won't happen unless we share with them the gospel. And so Lord, out of a life of thanksgiving and gratitude for what you have done for us, May we be faithful to tell them of all that the Lord has done for us, and then to move and say, and what He has done for us, He can and will do for you if you'll just trust Him. I thank you that the demonized can be delivered. I thank you that sinners can be saved. I thank you for a wonderful Savior whose name is Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a friend. We pray this evening in His name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.